Section 17 of Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Arranged by Leonard Huxley. Chapter 8. Home Impressions and an Excursion. Impressions on Returning to the Hut, April 13, 1911. In choosing the site of the hut on our home beach, I had thought of the possibility of northerly winds bringing a swell, but had argued, firstly, that no heavy northerly swell had ever been recorded in the sound, secondly, that a strong northerly wind was bound to bring pack which would damp the swell, thirdly, that the locality was excellently protected by the barn glacier, and finally, that the beach itself showed no signs of having been swept by the sea, the rock fragments composing it being completely angular. When the hut was erected and I found that its foundation was only eleven feet above the level of the sea ice, I had a slight misgiving, but reassured myself again by reconsidering the circumstances that afforded shelter to the beach. The fact that such question had been considered makes it easier to understand the attitude of mind that readmitted doubt in the face of phenomenal conditions. The event has justified my original arguments, but I must confess a sense of having assumed security without sufficient proof in a case where an error of judgment might have had dire consequences. It was not until I found all safe at the home station that I realized how anxious I had been concerning it. In a normal season, no thought of its having been in danger would have occurred to me, but since the loss of the ponies and the breaking of the glacier tongue, I could not rid myself of the fear that misfortune was in the air, and that some abnormal swell had swept the beach, Gloomy thoughts of the havoc that might have been wrought by such an event would arise in spite of the sound reasons which had originally led me to choose the side of the hut as a safe one. The late freezing of the sea, the terrible continuance of wind, and the abnormalities to which I have referred, had gradually strengthened the profound distrust with which I had been forced to regard our mysterious Antarctic climate, until my imagination conjured up many forms of disaster as possibly falling on those from whom I had parted for so long we marched towards Cape Evans under the usually miserable conditions, which attend the breaking of camp in a cold wind after a heavy blizzard. The outlook was dreary in the grey light of early morning. Our clothes were frozen stiff, and our fingers, wet and cold in the tent, had been frost-bitten in packing the sledges. A few comforting signs of life appeared as we approached the Cape. Some old footprints in the snow, a long silk thread from the meteorologist's balloon. But we saw nothing more as we neared the rocks of the promontory, and the many grounded bergs which were scattered off it. To my surprise the fast ice extended past the cape and we were able to round it into the north bay. Here we saw the weather screen on Windvane Hill, and a moment later turned a small headland and brought the hut in full view. It was intact, stables, outhouses and all. Evidently the sea had left it undisturbed. I breathed a huge sigh of relief. We watched two figures at work near the stables and wondered when they would see us. In a moment or two they did so, and fled inside the hut to carry the news of our arrival. Three minutes later, all nine occupants, Simpson, Nelson, Day, Ponting, Lashley, Clissold, Hooper, Anton, and Dimitri, were streaming over the flow towards us with shouts of welcome. There were eager inquiries as to mutual welfare, and it took but a minute to learn the most important events of the quiet station life which had been led since our departure. Those under the circumstances might well be considered the deaths of one pony and one dog. 
The pony was that which had been nicknamed Hackenschmidt from his vicious habit of using both fore and hind legs in attacking those who came near him. He had been obviously of different breed from the other ponies, being of lighter and handsomer shape, suggestive of a strain of Arab blood. From no cause which could be discovered either by the symptoms of his illness or the post-mortem held by Nelson could a reason be found for his death. In spite of the best feeding and every care he had gradually sickened until he was too weak to stand, and in this condition there had been no option but to put him out of misery. Anton considers the death of Hackenschmidt to have been an act of cussedness, the result of a determination to do no work for the expedition. Although the loss is serious, I remember doubts which I had as to whether this animal could be anything but a source of trouble to us. He had been the most difficult to handle all through, showing a vicious, intractable temper. I had foreseen great difficulties with him, especially during the early part of any journey on which he was taken, and this consideration softened the news of his death. The dog had been left behind in a very sick condition, and this loss was not a great surprise. These items were the worst of the small budget of news that awaited me. For the rest, the hut arrangements had worked out in the most satisfactory manner possible, and the scientific routine of observations was in full swing. After our primitive life at Cape Armitage, it was wonderful to enter the precincts of our warm, dry Cape Evans home. The interior space seemed palatial, the light resplendent, and the comfort luxurious. It was very good to eat in civilized fashion, to enjoy the first bath for three months, and have contact with clean, dry clothing. Such fleeting hours of comfort, for customs soon banish their delight, are the treasured remembrance of every polar traveller. They throw into sharpest contrast the hardships of the past and the comforts of the present, and for the time he revels in the unaccustomed physical contentment that results. It was not many hours or even minutes in the hut before I was hailed round to observe in detail the transformation which had taken place during my absence, and in which a very proper pride was taken by those who had wrought it. Simpson's Corner was the first visited. Here the eye travelled over numerous shelves laden with a profusion of self-recording instruments, electric batteries and switchboards, whilst the ear caught the ticking of many clocks, the gentle whir of a motor, and occasionally the trembling note of an electric bell. But such sights and sounds conveyed only an impression of the delicate methodological means by which the daily and hourly variations of our weather conditions were being recorded, a mere glimpse of the intricate arrangements of a first-class meteorological station, the one and only station of that order which has been established in polar regions. It took me days and even months to realize fully the aims of our meteorologist and the scientific accuracy with which he was achieving them. When I did so, to an adequate extent, I wrote some description of his work which will be found in the following pages of this volume. The first impression, which I am here describing, was more confused. I appreciated only that by going to Simpson's Corner one could ascertain at a glance how hard the wind was blowing, and had been blowing, how the barometer was varying, to what degree of cold the thermometer had descended. If one were still more inquisitive, he could further inform himself as to the electrical tension of the atmosphere and other matters of like import. That such knowledge could be gleaned without a visit to the open air was an obvious advantage to those who were clothing themselves to face it, whilst the ability to study the variation of a storm without exposure savoured of no light victory of mind over matter. The dark room stands next to the parasitologist's side of the bench, which flanks Sunny Jim's corner, an involved sentence. To be more exact, the physicists adjust their instruments and write up books at a bench which projects at right angles to the end wall of the hut. The opposite side of this bench is allotted to Atkinson, who is to write with his back to the dark room. 
Atkinson being still absent, his corner was unfurnished, and my attention was next claimed by the occupant of the dark room beyond Atkinson's limit. The art of photography has never been so well housed within the polar regions, and rarely without them. Such a palatial chamber for the development of negatives and prints can only be justified by the quality of the work produced in it, and is only justified in our case by the possession of such an artist as Ponting. He was eager to show me the results of his summer work, and meanwhile my eye took in the neat shelves with their array of cameras, etc., the porcelain sink and automatic water tap, the two acetylene gas burners with their shading screens, and the general obviousness of all conveniences of the photographic art. Here, indeed, was encouragement for the best results, and to the photographer be all praise, for it is mainly his hand which has executed the designs which his brain conceived. In this may be clearly seen the advantage of a traveller's experience. Ponting has had to fend for himself under primitive conditions in a new land. The result is a handyman with every form of tool and in any circumstances. Thus, when building operations were to the fore and mechanical labour scarce, Ponting returned to the shell of his apartment with only the raw material for completing it. In the shortest possible space of time, shelves and tanks were erected, doors hung and windows framed, and all in a workmanlike manner commanding the admiration of all beholders. It was well that speed could be commanded for such work, since the fleeting hours of the summer season had been altogether too few to be spared from the immediate surface of photography. Ponting's nervous temperament allowed no waste of time. For him, fine weather meant no sleep. He decided that lost opportunities should be as rare as circumstances would permit. This attitude was now manifested in the many yards of cinematographic film remaining on hand, and yet greater number recorded as having been sent back in the ship, in the boxes of negatives lying on the shelves, and in a well-filled album of prints. Of the many admirable points in this work, perhaps the most notable are Ponting's eye for a picture, and the mastery he has acquired of ice subjects. The composition of most of his pictures is extraordinarily good. He seems to know by instinct the exact value of foreground and middle distance, and of the introduction of life, whilst more technical skill in the manipulation of screens and exposures he emphasizes the subtle shadows of the snow, and reproduces its wondrously transparent texture. He is an artist in love with his work, and it was good to hear his enthusiasm for results of the past and plans for the future. Long before I could gaze my fill at the contents of the dark room, I was led to the biologist's cubicle. Nelson and Day had from the first decided to camp together, each having a habit of methodical neatness. Both were greatly relieved when the arrangement was approved, and they were freed from the chance of an untidy companion. No attempt had been made to furnish this cubicle before our departure on the autumn journey, but now on my return I found it an example of the best utilization of space. The prevailing note was neatness. The biologist's microscope stood on a neat bench surrounded by enamel dishes, vessels, and books neatly arranged. Behind him, when seated, rose two neat bunks with neat, closely curtained drawers for clothing and neat reflecting sconces for candles. Overhead was a neat arrangement for drying socks with several nets, neatly bestowed. The carpentering to produce this effect had been of quite a high order, and was in very marked contrast with that exhibited for the hasty erections in other cubicles. The pillars and boarding of the many bunks had carefully finished edges, and were stained to mahogany brown. Nelson's bench is situated very conveniently under the largest of the hut windows, and had also an acetylene lamp 
so that both in summer and winter he has all conveniences for his indoor work. Day appeared to have been unceasingly busy during my absence. Everyone paid tribute to his mechanical skill and expressed gratitude for the help he had given in adjusting instruments and generally helping forward the scientific work. He was entirely responsible for the heating, lighting, and ventilating arrangements, and as all these appear satisfactory he deserved much praise. Particulars concerning these arrangements I shall give later. As a first impression, it is sufficient to note that the warmth and lighting of the hut seemed as good as could be desired, whilst for our comfort the air seemed fresh and pure. Day had also to report some progress with the motor sledges, but this matter also I leave for future consideration. My attention was very naturally turned from the heating arrangements to the cooking stove and its custodian, Clissold. I had already heard much of the surpassingly satisfactory meals which his art had produced, and had indeed already a first experience of them. Now I was introduced to the cook's corner with its range and ovens, its pots and pans, its side tables and well-covered shelves. Much was to be gathered therefrom, although a good meal by no means depends only on kitchen conveniences. It was gratifying to learn that the stove had proved itself economical, and the patent fuel blocks a most convenient and efficient substitute for coal. Save for the thickness of the furnace cheeks and the size of the oven, Clissold declared himself wholly satisfied. He feared that the oven would prove too small to keep up a constant supply of bread for all hands. Nevertheless, he introduced me to this oven with an air of pride which I soon found to be fully justified. For connected therewith there was a contrivance for which he was entirely responsible, and which in its ingenuity rivaled any of which the hut could boast. The interior of the oven was so arranged that the rising of the bread completed an electric circuit, thereby ringing a bell and switching on a red lamp. Clissold had realized that the continuous ringing of the bell would not be soothing to the nerves of our party, nor the continuous burning of the lamp calculated to prolong its life, and he had therefore added the clockwork mechanism which automatically broke the circuit after a short interval of time. Further, this clockwork mechanism could be made to control the immersions of the same warning signals at intervals of time, varied according to the desire of the operator. Thus because, when in bed, he would desire a signal at short periods, but if absent from the hut he would wish to know at a glance what had happened when he returned. Judged by any standard it was a remarkably pretty little device, but when I learnt that it had been made from odds and ends, such as a cog-wheel or spring here, and a cell or magnet there, begged from other departments, I began to realize that we had a very exceptional cook. Later, when I found that Clissold was called in to consult on the ailments of Simpson's motor, and that he was capable of constructing a dog-sledge out of packing-cases, I was less surprised, because I knew by this time that he had had considerable training in mechanical work, before he turned his attention to pots and pans. My first impressions include matters to which I was naturally eager to give an early half-hour, namely the housing of our animals. I found herein that praise was as justly due to our Russian boys as to my fellow Englishmen. Anton, with Lashley's help, had completed the furnishing of the stables. Neat stalls occupied the whole length of the lean-to, the sides so boarded that sprawling legs could not be entangled beneath the front well covered with tin sheet to defend the cribbers. I could but sigh again to think of the stalls that must now remain empty, whilst appreciating that there was ample room for the safe harbouring of the ten beasts that remain be the winter never so cold or the wind so wild. Later we have been able to give double space to all but two or three of our animals, in which they can lie down if they are so inclined. 
The ponies looked fairly fit considering the low diet on which they had been kept. Their coats were surprisingly long and woolly in contrast with those of the animals I had left at Hut Point. At this time they were being exercised by Lashley, Anton, Dimitri, Hooper, and Clissold, and as a rule were ridden, the sea having only recently frozen. The exercise ground had lain on the boulder-strewn sand of the home beach, and extending towards the Skua Lake, and across these stretches I soon saw bare-backed figures dashing at speed, and not a few amusing incidents in which horse and rider parted with abrupt lack of ceremony. I didn't think this quite the most desirable form of exercise for the beasts, but decided to leave matters as they were till our pony manager returned. Dimitri had only five or six dogs left in charge, but these looked fairly fit, all things considered, and it was evident the boy was bent on taking every care of them, for he had not only provided shelters, but had built a small lean-to, which would serve as a hospital for any animal whose stomach or coat needed nursing. Such were the broad outlines of the impressions I received on my first return to our home station. They were almost wholly pleasant, and as I have shown, in happy contrast with the fears that had assailed me on the homeward route. As the days went by, I was able to fill in the detail in equally pleasant fashion, to watch the development of fresh arrangements and the improvement of old ones. Finally, in this way I was brought to realize what an extensive and intricate but eminently satisfactory organization I had made myself responsible for. Notes on Flyleaf, a fresh manuscript book. Genus Homo, Species Sapiens, Flotsam. William Barrett's house in Novaya Zemla, built 1596, found by Captain Carlson, 1871, 275 years later, intact. Everything inside is left. What of this hut? The ocean-girt continent. Might have seemed almost heroic if any higher end than excessive love of gain and traffic had animated the design. Milton. He is not worthy to live at all, who, for fear and danger of death, shunneth his country's service or his own honor, since death is inevitable and the fame of virtue immortal. Sir Humphrey Gilbert. There is no part of the world that cannot be reached by man. When the can-be is turned to has-been, the geographical society will have altered its status. At the whirring loom of time unawed, I weave the living garment of God. Gertha. By all means, think yourself big, but don't think everyone else small. The man who knows everyone's job isn't much good at his own. When you are attacked unjustly, avoid the appearance of evil, but also avoid the appearance of being too good. A man can't be too good, but he can appear too good. Monday, April 17th. Started from C. Evans with two ten-foot sledges. Party 1. Self, Lashley, Day, Dimitri. Party 2. Bowers, Nelson, Crean, Hooper. We left at 8 a.m. taking our personal equipment, a week's provision of sledging food, and butter, oatmeal, flour, lard, chocolate, etc. for the hut. Two of the ponies hauled the sledges to within a mile of the glacier tongue. The wind, which had been north, here suddenly shifted to southeast, very biting. The wind remained north at C. Evans during the afternoon. The ponies walked back into it. Sky overcast, very bad light. Found the place to get on the glacier, but then lost the track, crossed more or less direct, getting amongst many cracks. Came down in bay near the open water. Stumbled over the edge to an easy drift. More than once on these trips, I, as leader, have suddenly disappeared from the side of the others, affording some consternation till they got close enough to see what has happened. The pull over sea ice was very heavy, and in face of strong wind and drift. 
Every member of the party was frostbitten about the face, several with very cold feet. Pushed on after repairs. Found drift streaming off the ice cliff. A new cornice formed and our rope buried at both ends. The party getting cold, I decided to camp, have tea, and shift footgear. Whilst tea was preparing, Bowers and I went south, then north, along the cliffs to find a place to ascend. Nearly everywhere ascent seemed impossible in the vicinity of Holton Rocks or north, but eventually we found an overhanging cornice close to our rope. After lunch we unloaded a sledge, which, held high on end by four men, just reached the edge of the cornice. Clambering up over backs and up sledge, I used an ice axe to cut steps over the cornice, and thus managed to get on top then cut steps and surmounted the edge of the cornice. Helped Bowers up with the rope. Others followed. Then the gear was hauled up piecemeal. For Crean, the last man up, we lowered the sledge over the cornice and used a bowline on the other end of the rope on top of it. He came up grinning with delight, and we all thought the ascent rather a cunning piece of work. It was fearfully cold work, but everyone working with rare intelligence, we eventually got everything up and repacked the sledge. Glad to get in harness again then a heavy pull up a steep slope in wretched light, making detour to left to avoid crevices. We reached the top and plodded on past the craters as nearly as possible as on the outward route. The party was pretty exhausted and very wet with perspiration. Approaching Castle Rock, the weather and light improved. Camped on Barrier Slope, north of Castle Rock, about 9 p.m. Night cold but calm, negative 38 degrees during the night. Slept pretty well. Tuesday, April 18th. Hut Point. Good moonlight at 7 a.m., had breakfast. Broke camp very quickly. Lashley splendid at camp work as of old. Very heavy pull up to Castle Rock. Sweated much. This sweating in cold temperature is a serious drawback. Reached Hut Point 1 p.m. Found all well in excellent spirits. Didn't seem to want as much. Party reported very bad weather since we left. Cold blizzard, then continuous southwest wind with negative 20 and below. The open water was right up to Hut Point wind absolutely preventing all freezing along shore. Wilson reported Skuagull seen Monday. Found party much shorter of blubber than I had expected. They were only just keeping themselves supplied with a seal killed two days before, and one as we arrived. Actually less fast ice than when we left. Wednesday, April 19th, Hut Point. Calm during the night. Sea froze over at noon, four and a half inches thick off Hut Point showing how easily the sea will freeze when the chance is given. Three seals reported on the ice. All hands out after breakfast and the liver and blubber of all three seals were brought in. This relieves one of a little anxiety, leaving a twelve days stock, in which time other seals ought to be coming up. I am making arrangements to start back tomorrow, but at present it is overcast and wind coming up from the south. This afternoon, all ice frozen, last night went out quietly, the sea tried to freeze behind it, but the wind freshened soon. The ponies were exercised yesterday and today. They look pretty fit, but their coats are not so good as those in winter quarters. They want fatty foods. Am preparing to start tomorrow, satisfied that the Discovery Hut is very comfortable and life very livable in it. The dogs are much the same, all looking pretty fit except Viata and Ravchik, neither of which seem to get good coats. I am greatly struck with the advantages of experience in Crean and Lashley for all work about camps. Thursday, April 20th, Hut Point. Everything ready for starting this morning, but at course it blizzed. Weather impossible. Much wind and drift from the south. Wind turned to southeast in the afternoon. Temperatures low. 
went for walk to Cape Armitage, but it is really very unpleasant. The wind blowing around the Cape is absolutely blighting, force seven and temperature below negative thirty degrees. See a black cauldron covered with dark frost smoke. No ice can form in such weather. Friday, April 21st. Started homeward at 10.30. Left Meagers in charge of station with Dimitri to help with dogs, Lashley and Cohane to look out for ponies, Nelson and Day and Ford to get some idea of the life and experience. Homeward party, therefore, Self, Bowers, Wilson, Oates, Atkinson, Cherry Gerard, Crean, and Hooper. As usual, all hands pulled up Ski Slope, which we took without a halt. Lashley and Dimitri came nearly to Castle Rock. Very cold side wind and some frostbites. We reached the last downward slope about 2.30. At the cliff edge found the cornice gone. Heavy wind and drift worse than before, if anything. We bustled things, and after tantalizing delays with the rope got Bowers and some others on the floe, then lowered the sledges, packed. Three men, including Crean and myself, slid down last on the alpine rope, doubled and taken round an ash stave, so that we were able to unreave the end and recover the rope. We recovered also most of the old alpine rope, all except a piece buried in snow on the sea ice and dragged down under the slush, just like the discovery boats. I could not have supposed this could happen in so short a time. Footnote. Voyage of the Discovery, Chapter 9. The question of the moment is, what has become of our boats? Early in the winter they were hoisted out to give more room for the awning, and were placed in a line about one hundred yards from the ice foot on the sea ice. The earliest gale drifted them up nearly gunwale high, and thus for two months they remained in sight whilst we congratulated ourselves on their security. The last gale brought more snow, and piling it in drifts at various places in the bay, chose to be especially generous with it in the neighborhood of our boats, so that afterwards they were found to be buried three or four feet beneath the new surface. Although we had noted with interest the manner in which the extra weight of snow in other places was pressing down the surface of the original ice, and were even taking measurements of the effect thus produced, we remained fatuously blind to the risks our boats ran under such conditions. It was from no feeling of anxiety, but rather to provide occupation, that I directed that the snow on top of them should be removed, and it was not until we had dug down to the first boat that the true state of affairs dawned on us. She was found lying in a mass of slushy ice, with which also she was nearly filled. For the moment we had a wild hope that she could be pulled up, but by the time we could rig shears the air temperature had converted the slush into hardened ice, and she was found to be stuck fast. At present there is no hope of recovering any of the boats. As fast as one could dig out the sodden ice, more sea-water would flow in and freeze. The danger is that fresh gales bring more snow will sink them so far beneath the surface that we shall be unable to recover them at all. Stuck solid in the flow they must go down with it, and every effort must be devoted to preventing the flow from sinking. As regards the rope, it is a familiar experience that dark objects which absorb heat will melt their way through the snow or ice on which they lie. End of footnote. By the time all stores were on the flow, with swirling drift about us, everyone was really badly cold, one of those moments for quick action. We harnessed and dashed for the shelter of the cliffs, up tents and hot tea as quick as possible. After this and some shift of footgear all were much better. Heavy plod over the sea ice, starting at 4.30. Very bad light on the glacier, and we lost our way as usual, stumbling into many crevices, but finally descending in the old place by this time sweating much. Crean reported our sledge pulling much more heavily than the other one. 
marched on to Little Razor Back Island without halt, our own sledge dragging fearfully. Crean said there was great difference in the sledges, though loads were equal. Bowers politely assented when I voiced this sentiment, but I'm sure he and his party thought it was the plea of tired men. However, there was nothing like proof, and he readily assented to change sledges. The difference was really extraordinary. We felt the new sledge a featherweight compared with the old, and set up a pace for the home quarters regardless of how much we perspired. We arrived at the hut, two miles away, ten minutes ahead of the others, who by this time were quite convinced as to the difference in the sledges. The difference was only marked when pulling over the salt-covered sea ice. On snow the sledges seemed pretty much the same. It is due to the grain of the wood in the runners, and is worth looking into. We all arrived bathed in sweat. Our garments were soaked through, and as we took off our wind clothes showers of ice fell on the floor. The accumulation was almost incredible and shows the whole trouble of sledging in cold weather. It would have been very uncomfortable to have camped in the open under such conditions, and assuredly a winter and spring party cannot afford to get so hot if they wish to retain any semblance of comfort. Our excellent cook had just the right meal prepared for us, an enormous dish of rice and figs, and cocoa in a bucket. The hut party were all very delighted to see us, and the fittings and comforts of the hut are amazing to the newcomers. Saturday, April 22nd. Camp Evans, Winter Quarters. The sledging season is at an end. It's good to be back in spite of all the losses we have sustained. Today we enjoy a very exceptional calm. The sea is freezing over, of course, but unfortunately our view from Observatory Hill is very limited. Oates and the rest are exercising the ponies. I have been sorting my papers and getting ready for the winter work. End of chapter 8